0: From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What do Antoine's in New Orleans, Sylvia's in Harlem, the Mandarin in San Francisco, and the once powerful chain of Howard Johnson's restaurants all have in common? According to Yale professor Paul Friedman, they're all part of an influential group of 10 restaurants that changed America. On this week's show, we sit down with Paul to discuss his book by that name, which weaves together culinary and social history from lunch counter dining to the vanguards of haute cuisine. We then zoom in on a key part of that history, the bill of fare, with Jim Hyman, editor of Menu Design in America. Finally, we explore the role a New Orleans supermarket chain played in shaping the modern retail world. David Capello discusses his biography of John G. Schwegman, a complex figure whose influence extended far beyond the checkout aisle. From restaurants to retail, we're exploring the evolution of how we eat on this week's Louisiana Eats.
1: I'm Paul Friedman. I'm the author of a book called Ten Restaurants That Changed America.
0: Since the 18th century, when the first modern dining establishments opened in Paris, restaurants have served as cultural markers, reflecting its patrons' values and identity. In his book, Ten Restaurants That Changed America, Paul Friedman explores our nation's changing cultural and culinary tastes through a short list of restaurants he believes helped shape them. The historian and Yale professor joined us to discuss his 10 picks and the changes each restaurant made to American culture. Paul, welcome to Louisiana Eats, and such an honor to have you here in the studio with us.
1: Well, it's an honor and a pleasure for me to be here.
0: I am so curious about so many things that have to do with this book, and I understand that in order to write the book, you literally poured through hundreds of thousands of restaurants over two centuries. What's your criteria?
1: My criteria is really influence, restaurants that were influential, not necessarily restaurants that were wonderful or whose food conforms to our current standards of what we admire.
0: So walk us through the 10 and why they were selected for this honor.
1: Well, chronologically, the first is Delmonico's. And this is Delmonico's in New York, and it was established in about 1830. It's really the first restaurant in the United States. By restaurant, meaning a place that gives you a choice of what to order from a menu, a choice of who you want to eat with. It also dominated fine dining and the image of fine dining throughout the 19th century. The second is Antoine's in New Orleans, chosen as a representative of the most vibrant and long-lasting regional cuisine of the United States, and also one of the oldest restaurants in the United States.
0: Second oldest.
1: Second oldest, exactly. Continuously
0: operated. And the oldest continuously
1: operated by the same family. So then Schrafft's, which was a chain of restaurants in the Northeast that really got going around 1900. And it is a pioneer of middle-class dining, so not elegant like Antoine's and Delmonico's, but not just a kind of hash house or luncheonette. The other reason it's important is that it was the first, among the first restaurants to appeal to women, not just by atmosphere, but by the kind of food that women were thought to like. Light food, but also fancy desserts, ice cream in particular. <coughs>
0: So if you were to dine at Shrafts, what might a typical meal there
1: be like? Well, I can tell you based on my grandmother who <laughs> loved Shrafts. My grandmother would have had cottage cheese and fruit or chicken salad or club sandwich, something pretty light and then follow it up with a banana split or a sundae. <laughs>
2: well, that and that's what it sound was designed like fun. for.
1: So my next restaurant is Howard Johnson's. Howard Johnson's is the pioneer in the fast food industry because it invents franchising, and it also is the first restaurant as a chain to establish itself on the road and to appeal to the traveler in families. On the road around the corner, here's the place to go. The orange roof of Howard Johnson's, join the folks who know. So it was the first kind of family-friendly restaurant, and um, it was the largest restaurant chain in the U.S. In the 1960s, it served more meals than any other institution except for the U.S. Army.
0: How many Howard Johnsons were there in its heyday?
1: Uh, about 1,000, coast to coast. Thousand? Yes, and there's only one left. It's in, like, George, New York It survives as the last of the franchisees. So Howard Johnson had franchises and it had restaurants owned by the company. When the company was broken up and sold, the franchisees were orphaned. They were like people cast out on icebergs and they folded slowly and gradually as they either turned into some other restaurant or just closed, retired, couldn't make any money. So this is the last one.
0: Who was Howard Johnson?
1: He's like a number of founders of companies, a fanatic, a workaholic, very innovative, always tinkering with the look of the place, the marketing, the advertising, the architecture, the image. So he's really one of these founding geniuses of American business, the Henry Ford of the restaurant world. So my, my next pair of restaurants are what used to be called ethnic restaurants, a Chinese restaurant called The Mandarin in San Francisco. And the justification for that is you can't write about American restaurants without including Chinese restaurants. There are 40,000 of them today, more than McDonald's, KFC, and Burger King's combined. And then Mama Leone's an Italian restaurant in New York, now closed. Mama Leone's was both a bohemian little kind of Chianti bottle with a candle in it place. When it was founded in 1906, well into the 1920s, and then it became the largest restaurant in the United States in terms of size, it could serve easily 3,000, 3,500 people a night.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes,
1: it was huge. And it had huge quantities of food. That was its signature, and a kind of stereotypical Italian, joyous atmosphere. All the ladies were assured that the desserts had no calories. Uh, the waiters <laughs> were flirtatious. Uh, the atmosphere was sort of operatic or uh, artificially operatic, but it was an extremely successful Restaurant and represented what people thought Italian food was for decades.
0: And who was Mama Leone? Uh,
1: Louisa Leone was the wife of a wine importer in New York, and she was a very good cook and cooked for friends and. Uh, Enrico Caruso was among the people who not so much convinced her to open a restaurant because she was all for it, but convinced her husband in 1906 that this was a good idea. And they turned their front room of their brownstone or townhouse or glorified tenement building in the uh, midtown neighborhood of the Metropolitan Opera, which was on 39th Street, into a restaurant, and it was tremendously successful. She was always very good at quantities. Her husband had the habit of inviting dozens of people to dinner without giving her much more than two hours warning, uh. and, and, and she never never complained about this. Not only knew how to do it, but considered that the normal way of doing business
0: tell me about the Mandarin in San Francisco. You know, San Francisco's got Chinatown. I guess Chinatown was pretty much always there. The Mandarin came along in 1961, so this wasn't revolutionary new Chinese food.
1: Well, it was a little bit on the revolutionary side because it served northern Chinese food and dot Cantonese. It was high-end and not inexpensive. It was the first place that I ever had things like potstickers, hot and sour soup, Peking duck, these northern specialties that now have become so standard. It was uh, unusual in that it was the creation of a woman in what was a man's business, a woman who was not from southern China, was not Cantonese, Uh, And it wasn't in Chinatown. It first was on Polk Street, west of Chinatown in San Francisco, and then it moved to Ghirardelli Square, one of the first historical restorations of uh, an old candy factory, and very beautiful and very high-end, and it had prestigious customers or famous customers like John Lennon ate there regularly. The Jefferson Airplane, a famous rock group of the 60s, ate there. Its proprietor, its founder, Cecilia Chang, is perhaps the most striking, unusual, uh, and entertaining person I've met in doing this research. She's had a fascinating life and created the Mandarin uh, almost really by accident in 1961. She Was investing in what she thought was someone else's business, and the other people pulled out of it, leaving her holding a $10,000 debt. And so she figured she'd better try to open the restaurant herself. She was not an expert cook. She had grown up in a very wealthy family with two chefs and wasn't allowed in the kitchen because it wasn't appropriate (laughs) for a woman of her class to learn such things. So She, too, is a genius, different kind of genius from Howard Deering Johnson and uh, one who is still influential in the American food scene and, and a legend.
0: Coming up next, we continue our time travel through iconic American restaurants with Paul Friedman, author of Ten Restaurants That Changed America. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. ¶¶ Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets, tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, now celebrating 100 years of New Orleans traditions. Celebrate with Camellia by sharing your family's favorite bean stories. Email me at poppy at poppytooker.com to share in the celebration. If you're just joining us, we've been speaking with Paul Friedman. Author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. For his book, the historian and Yale professor picked 10 dining establishments that he believes helped shape our nation's cultural and culinary tastes. Next up on his short list is the iconic soul food staple, Sylvia's Restaurant of Harlem.
1: Sylvia's in New York, founded in 1962, a very prosperous restaurant to this day, represents southern food, the migration of southern food to the north with the great migration of African Americans beginning around the First World War, and the different ways in which southern food, soul food, what's sometimes called country Cooking or down home cooking, the interaction of these concepts.
0: Who were the people who owned Sylvia's?
1: They're a family from South Carolina. Sylvia uh, Woods herself, her grandfather had been uh, lynched essentially uh, for a murder he didn't commit. Her grandmother uh, didn't know how to read or write. They owned a farm. Uh, Her memories of Hemingway, South Carolina are of a kind of idyllic life, despite this harsh treatment and subordination. There was a restaurant in Hemingway, but black people weren't allowed in it, so she had basically almost never been in a restaurant when she opened Sylvia's. She worked for a a man who owned a luncheonette, and he sold it to her, and that's what became Sylvia's in 1962.
0: 1962, Sylvia's Open, was it segregated?
1: No, uh, but Harlem had been uh, the nightclub district of New York, particularly during Prohibition and a little bit in the 1930s. In 1962, it was still a neighborhood that had whites and blacks dining and to some extent uh, going to entertainments together. But beginning in the mid-60s, It was segregated more by whites who were both afraid of what they regarded as a dangerous part of town and who tended to marginalize that part of town. African-Americans themselves traveled all over New York to go to school, to have jobs. So it was really more a question of white people in New York perceiving the neighborhood as really having no attractions. Um, When politicians would campaign at Sylvia's, white politicians like Ed Koch, the mayor for many years, thought it was actually the only restaurant in Harlem. When it was reviewed by Gail Green in New York Magazine in the 1970s, she said in retrospect her editor was doubtful about her going there because it would encourage readers to do something dangerous. Namely, go to Harlem, presumably white readers, naturally. And, and that really astounds me. It's as if you were encouraging people to drive 100 miles an hour or do something reckless? And you know, would they get into trouble if suddenly people following Gail Green's review showed up in Harlem? and got into trouble somehow. And she herself was amazed at the welcome she received, the fact that there was really, although the only problem she really had was getting a taxi to take her up to Harlem. In those days, taxi drivers flat out refused to. So it's it's really a demonstration of something that is a persistent aspect of segregation in the North where it wasn't legislated, but it was, as in many respects, it remains a fact of life.
0: And they're still open today.
1: They are prospering today. They're doing very well, yeah, and they have very good food. They're right next to Red Rooster, the Marcus Samuelson restaurant, which has a more kind of uh, perhaps hip take on African-American food. And the two restaurants seem to reinforce each other rather than competing.
0: Is their menu still the same?
1: They've taken some things off from their old menu. So some things that, uh, giblets, uh, uh, gives chicken gizzards, uh, on the one hand, and then some just basically you would have thought of Middle American staples, meatloaf, roast beef. So there are more chicken and ribs and uh, vegetables, collard greens, that kind of thing.
0: So for our next two restaurants, I suppose it would be wise to talk about Le Pavillon and the Four Seasons sort of in the same vein.
1: Definitely, because Le Pavillon, which opened in 1941 and closed in the mid-1970s, was the epitome of high-end French dining, which dominated American food at the high end until the 1970s and 80s. Le Pavillon was the creation of Henri Soulet. It was called Pavillon because it began as the restaurant at the French Pavilion of the World's Fair of 1939 40. And the Nazi invasion of France, the blitzkrieg that destroyed the French government in the spring of 1940, stranded. These restaurant workers and Henri Soule rallied them and created a restaurant in Manhattan that from the start, even in that inauspicious year, 1941, was the place to dine, the place not only to be seen, but that everybody agreed had the best food. But best food at that time meant French food. Four Seasons, founded in 1959, was as elegant as Le Pavillon, although not in a kind of French Belle Epoque manner, but in a magnificent modernist Bauhaus idiom. And it was deliberately not French. So that was the first high-end not French restaurant. It's hard to say exactly what it was. It certainly pioneered seasonality in certain respects as we know it. They had greens that they gathered, that they foraged, they had mushrooms, they had an herb garden. At the same time, they defined seasonal not as local. So if truffles were in season in France, they imported truffles. They had a lot of imported items, salmon from Norway, for example, Dover sole, always a signature item. So they weren't exactly in anticipation of what we now know as local and seasonal. They weren't even exactly American but they were the first restaurant really to emphasize something that was not French at the high end.
0: Yet not American at the Four Seasons in many ways. From there, we, you go to the last one on your list, and I don't think you get any more American in a new American way than
1: Chez Panisse. That's right. Chez Panisse, on the other hand, as its name tells you, began as a French restaurant so that in 1971, when it was founded, Four Seasons would seem to be much more innovative than Chez Panisse. Chez Panisse began with Alice Waters' dream of recreating a rural French auberge that served just a few dishes. But her governing concept of quality of the basic ingredients as opposed to exoticness of the basic ingredients. Her focus on local and on seasonal, and some influences such as particular chefs, the influence of Provence and Italy, steered her towards a kind of cuisine that for want of a better term, could be called New American. I know that she herself has told me she doesn't like the term California cuisine. Mm -hmm. So it is a rediscovery of something that Americans, we haven't really liked or thought about that much. We've tended to like variety or new things or imported stuff and not focused on how good is this peach, how good is this tomato. Uh, how uh, interesting is this cheese? It's more how far away did this come from or how many varieties of yogurt can I get even though they're all made in a factory? The fact that this has changed is due to Chez Panisse, and I would say of all the restaurants in my list of 10, this is the one that people in the food writing and food industry world always accept without question. Uh, nobody has said, oh, what's Chez Panisse doing in there?
0: Who ended up on the cutting room floor?
1: Well, Alinea, actually, because I'm not sure how influential modernist cuisine ultimately is going to be. French Laundry, which could have a real claim to combining the farm-to-table with the modernist aesthetic, a really great and influential restaurant for sure. Then there are categories that I don't have. So I don't have a Mexican restaurant. I don't have a barbecue restaurant. I don't have a Jewish delicatessen either. I had tried to squeeze some others in, but my editor said this book is 10 restaurants that changed America, not 11 restaurants that changed America. Make your selection and get over it.
0: Well, if you could dine anywhere in history today— where would you choose to dine? What 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 is sort of your great holy grail of restaurants after having done all this research?
1: Well, I think I'd try Delmonico's in the 19th century. So, it'd be some 19th century restaurant cuz what I'd like to have would be that terrapin. I'd like to have wild canvasback ducks with celery sauce, which is the other great specialty of the 19th century.
0: Well, I am so glad that I had this incredible opportunity to sit down and talk with you about your amazing book. It's it's really a book that whether you're a chef or an eater, you'll want to devour from cover to cover. So thank you for making this time for us, Paul.
1: Well, thank you, Poppy. It's been an adventure for me and a, always a pleasure to be in New Orleans.
0: Paul Friedman, author of 10 Restaurants That Changed America. Simon is a graphic designer, pop culture anthropologist, and executive editor for publishing house Tashin America. Along with his own titles, Jim has provided the editing hand on several Tashin books that traverse the visual and material culture of the 20th century. One of those coffee table tomes is entitled Menu Design in America. With menu designs from the 1850s to the 1980s, the book traces the evolution of dining culture through the development of the Bill of fare.
3: You know, the menu book is the result of my own personal collection of menus. It's probably, at this point, somewhere around 30 years that I started collecting these. And that came from several books that I did prior to my work with Tosh. And, and I did a book on uh, the history of the drive-in restaurants, and being a graphic designer, uh, the graphics on these menus were pretty spectacular in some instances. So I started collecting these more for kind of research purposes, but then gradually the aesthetic of the menu cover really grabbed me. I just started going for it, and then um, it became kind of a critical map, and this was one that he felt was definitely worthy of the large format that we put it into because there's so much interesting stuff in these menus in relationship to the history of eating in America.
0: It really is a massive book. It measures 10 by 12 and three quarter inches. And I I think it weighs at least three pounds. How many images are in the book?
3: You know, there's close to around, I believe, 500 or so images. And so that was a huge editing job to take all of these uh, images from 5,000 and reduce to this format. But in doing so, it really forced me to edit out stuff that didn't really follow a narrative. And the narrative that I was really trying to show, again, was how America eats and also show the graphic chronology of these menus.
0: So it's, in essence, a history of restaurants and dining out in America.
3: Absolutely. Yep.
0: So tell us what you learned. Tell us about some of the trends that you saw come and go. What do we learn in this book?
3: Early on in the history of America, restaurants weren't really a pervasive element in dining at all. Most people ate at home, and hotels provided meals. And so that's probably the first instance where the public really is introduced to dining is through hotels and traveling. Now, as America grew and restaurants became part of an urban environment, uh, then you start seeing more and more restaurants. Now, in terms of food-wise, French cuisine seemed to dominate most of the menus. There are some regional aspects to a lot of restaurants that you might find fresh game in Colorado or in San Francisco you might have seafood or Dungeness crab, things that are really local delicacies. So you would see these appear in these menus. So it really was telling in terms of you know, what was available locally, but also the French cuisine was something that was so prevalent and was associated with fine dining that it really dominated Then you roll into the advent of the car, so all of a sudden you're dining in your car with drive-ins and inexpensive food, the precursor to fast food, makes its appearance, so hamburgers and hot dogs. Uh, We have rationing during World War II, which forces Americans to reconsider vegetables and other things that aren't meat-oriented. And Then we get into the fast food era of the 50s, where things take on very kind of quick pace with coffee shops. The drive-in restaurant is still prevalent, but it starts its ascendancy. And then you start having much more interesting cuisine in terms of the sophistication of uh, the American palate.
0: Something else that seemed to be drastically clear to me is that when it comes to food, apparently sex really sells and some of the nudity you see on these menus and, and it's in every decade I think would shock a lot of people today. Talk to us about some of those nudes on the menus.
3: Yeah, that was that was one aspect of the graphics that I found really interesting because some of the subject matter that you find on some of these menus, there's some very, very provocative and salacious uh material on front, most of it having to do with women and nudity. So you have lots of bare breasted women Lots of uh, suggestive poses, actually one menu, which I thought was quite interesting, was for a a men's club in San Francisco in the early part of the 20th century, and there's two satyrs that are dragging a a nude woman, and she's tied up, and what that had to do with the meal, I'm not quite sure. I never expected to find that on a menu.
0: Well, on the topic of things that I think people would find shocking, I think really to people today, as shocking as the nudes might be, also some of the blatant racism issues. And were they strictly from the South?
3: Oh, no. Uh, The subjugation of certain racial stereotypes fell in tandem with what was going on in most of cultural references at the time. The exaggeration of facial features was very prevalent. So blacks were depicted as a very cartoon-like manner, You know, Chinese were also the object of some of this racial stereotyping. There's a restaurant in Honolulu that the entire menu is done in pidgin English. The owner was Chinese, and so he he used this kind of language that is so stereotypical of Chinese. He made it a point that he emphasized that as a selling point to come to the restaurant. So the entire menu, including the items, is all done in pidgin English through Chinese filter. Again, this was what the cultural norms were at the time, and so people kind of went along with this depiction, and then it pretty much evaporates, although there are still some of those images appearing into the 60s and so on. But by the by the 70s, that's no longer acceptable. There wasn't necessarily just one particular segment of the population that was singled out for stereotyping. It went across the board.
0: Do you know how the menu itself began?
3: Yeah, it again follows the industrialization of the printing process so that initially most restaurants didn't have a printed menu. The menu was really on a blackboard. Originally, someone would just come and tell you what items there were. And in most cases, there weren't a lot of items. So it was easy to memorize six or seven entrees and so on. And then when it became a little bit more complex then you would put them on a board, And then once the printing process became affordable in the late 1800s, then you started seeing people having printed menus. But again, most of it was in hotel restaurants, where you would find the printed menu, or for special occasions. So if there was a a reunion of Civil War soldiers, you would find these menus printed, and they became very, very elaborate towards the end of the uh, 19th century, with ribbons and die cuts and shapes and... For these special occasions, sometimes they would pull all the plugs out and do something really, really expensive. And they're really beautiful examples of the printer's art.
0: Jim, by your estimate, what's the state of the menu today? Is there anybody out there creating really remarkable menus?
3: Well, I'll tell you, uh, I actually, as part of my graphic design career, I still design menus for restaurants here in L.A. So I'm just in the process of doing one right now. What has really taken over the menus is the computer. You know, people are talking about stuff on your iPhone That's when you go to a restaurant, you just go to a certain thing and you you don't even have to talk to a waitress. You just decide what your items are and send it to the kitchen. So those things are slowly evolving in the restaurant world in terms of menu.
0: Well, I just was fascinated with the whole topic. Love, love, love the book. And I hope all the Louisiana Eats listeners have a chance to thumb through some Tashin books sometime in the future.
3: Yeah, I hope so, too.
0: That was Jim Hyman, editor of Menu Design in America. Among the restaurants mentioned in Paul Friedman's book is New Orleans' very own Antoine's. On their menu, you'll find the classic potato dish, palm souffle. How was that magic invented? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans' French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany-taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Winter on the North Shore brings king cake-flavored must-haves and Mardi Gras festivities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question. Brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. How was that magic dish pomme souffle invented? Antoine's restaurant founder, Antoine Alciatoire, was just 14 years old and apprenticed to the great French chef Colinette, when a great banquet was planned for Louis-Philippe, the king of France. His majesty, Louis-Philippe, preferred his palm frit that's french fries, very crispy. So the chef instructed young Antoine to cut the potatoes in a certain way. He followed the chef's instructions, and when told that the king's arrival was imminent, he plunged them into the hot lard for cooking. As they began to turn golden brown, a runner appeared with the news that the king was not on the train as expected. Antoine pulled all the potatoes out of the boiling oil and set them aside on trays. Worried that this very important dish would be ruined, he instructed his helpers to stoke the fires to ensure the oil would be smoking hot. When the time came and the potatoes were placed back into the now hotter oil, they miraculously puffed up like little balloons. Everyone from his mentor, Colinette, To the king himself applauded Antoine's invention. And today, pommes soufflés remain a great specialty at the restaurant, which still bears his name. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Antoine's pommes soufflés are real Louisiana Eats.
4: My name is David Capello, and I'm the author of The People's Grocer, John G. Schwegman, New Orleans, and the Making of the Modern Retail World.
0: There are many buildings across New Orleans that still bear the names of forgotten businesses. Though some of the signs that once read Schwagman's are long gone, the city's original grocery empire is not forgotten. David Capella's biography of John G. Schwagman paints the portrait of a grocer who helped to create the modern supermarket. When John G. took over his father's simple food store, people began making groceries in a whole new way. David reflected back on these early times at Schwagman's.
4: Well, those were unique days in the grocery store business. It was completely different than it is now. There were no real brands. There was just barrels and bags and such things for commodities. And people had to come and bring their own containers and walk to the store and walk back to their homes. And when they got to the store, they were just waited on individually by a clerk.
0: When John G. took the reins and opened his first giant supermarket in 1946, the experience of shopping was quickly modernized to keep up with post-war development across the country.
4: It was a very well-done store, and it was highly successful. And he ended up managing this store on Piety and Burgundy for almost half a century, 50 years
0: That's practically an eon in retail years. The loyal shoppers of Schweigman's had plenty to get used to as John G. transformed the grocery store business. David tells us a story about one shopper's reaction to the changes.
4: How am I supposed to get around this puzzle garden? I want you to wait on me. There's no way I can find anything. And he handed her a bag and said, Well, you're on your own now. And... (laughs) And she said, no way am I going to do this. He's like, well, that's fine. And he took the bag and got all her things and came back and said, okay, here's your price, and I'm adding 10% service charge. <laughs> and then she threw a fit. And from then on, it was, it was self-service after that. When
0: John Schwegman opened the first Schwegman Brothers giant grocery on Airline Highway, not only was it really giant, it was filled with amazing innovations, including an air-conditioned bar located in the front of the store, where dads could cool their heels with a cold Dixie beer while mom made groceries.
4: He had the cheapest highballs in the country, apparently. Oh, really? And a lot of the locals would go out to Schweigman's to get away from the tourists because none of the tourists could even conceive that there was a bar in a supermarket.
0: Along with being able to imbibe while making groceries, customers would often come across the store's live inhabitants. Yeah,
4: they used to have live animals that they would render for the customers. And John Francis, the son, would come in to work on a Sunday morning or whatever while no one was in there, and he could hear the bullfrogs chirping all over the store. Was
0: this on Airline? Yes. The bullfrogs were were saying knee-deep on Airline. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It it adds to the exoticism, all of that, and a cold beer right in the store, too.
4: Cold beer and an oyster shell parking lot and all sorts of things.
0: Schwegman's was truly one of a kind. At the height of his success, John G. Schwegman did something most titans of industry would never do he became satisfied with his lot.
4: Yeah, that's one of the great mysteries and great inspirations behind this whole Schwegman story is that you don't really hear about that anymore these days, about deciding that you've made enough money.
0: After making his fortune, Mr. Schwegman set his sights on two other lofty goals, becoming a local politician and traveling the world. He began to share his philosophical and worldly discoveries with customers through his grocery store ads.
4: Where instead of just having a weekly ad that promotes his bargains at the store, he starts talking about his political beliefs and his morality and just whatever is on his mind. Now, he started... World traveling, he had a passion for travel. He loved going on steamship voyages to Europe and eventually all over the world. So when he first started doing this, he decided to publish in his supermarket ads these kind of blog extended blog posts telling about his... Fantastic travels to Europe and goes through like ten different countries and talks about everything that happened and very entertaining.
0: At this time, John G. Schwegman stepped back from the business, just as his son was poised to take over. Unfortunately, the changing consumer landscape signaled the decline of the stores.
4: The thing about it is is I think he kind of lost focus on the on his stores and so when the time came for John, his son, to take over the stores, they were not at the, you know, optimal tip-top peak, and he really couldn't go on. And at that point, his son took over. Who had, his son, who had been groomed to He'd take over. He'd been in the store
0: with the bullfrog since he was ten. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um.
4: So yeah. So he was primed and ready to go. Um. Now. He expanded outside of the city unlike what his father had ever wanted to do, and it was great. It it worked out great, and except at the same time, there was the rise of Walmart and Kmart, and they all got into the food business, and there was more supermarkets coming into the city, and so the son faced a lot more competition than the father. So anyway, anyway, he 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 had quite the challenge to um keep the store empire going.
0: Well, it's a it's a sad tale cuz we sure all miss making groceries at Schwagman's. I want to thank you so much for chronicling our history so efficiently and effectively and for sharing the story of the people's grocer with our Louisiana Eats audience. So thank you. Thank you so much, David.
4: Oh, thank you, Poppy.
0: David Capello, author of The People's Grocer. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.